Hey, what's up, bro? This episode is part two of our three-part series on Obed-Edom. And for this episode, I'm going to need you to put on your big bro pants. Roll that intro. What's up? I'm your bro, Dr. Mario Escobedo, pastor and online Bible teacher. It wasn't all that long ago that I lacked the confidence, knowledge, and tools to feed my desire to dig deeper into God's Word. Fast forward past many lessons learned, mentors, and personal encounters with God, and you'll see the incredible privilege God has given me to teach the Bible to others. I'm convinced now more than ever that it's been God's word that has led me to discover and fulfill the purpose God designed for me. I created the Christian Bro Code podcast to help you on your journey to do the same. If you're a Christian bro who wants to grow as a disciple of Jesus so you can live, love, and lead in a way that honors God, you're in the right place. Let's get started, bro. Hey, what's up? It's your bro, Dr. Mario Escobedo. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Christian Bro Code Podcast. This is Season 3, Episode Number 3, and this episode is being released on Saturday, June the 6th, 2020. New episodes of the Christian Bro Code Podcast, the first and third Saturday of every month. So when this episode is being released, it is the first Saturday of June 2020. Hey, make sure you subscribe like, comment, do all those things so that other bros can be aware of the Christian Bro Code podcast. And as I always mention, uh, whether it's the podcast or the YouTube channel, a live stream, a video on YouTube, anything, the purpose of the Christian Bro Code podcast is to help you grow as a disciple of Jesus so you can live, love, and lead to honor God. So again, make sure to subscribe do all those things so that you can always be up to date. And uh, I've mentioned this before, but the reason I do release the podcast episodes on Saturday mornings, 7.30, in the morning, first and third Saturday of every month, is because I know that those are typically days. Saturdays is typically the day that we're doing stuff around the house, cutting the yard, changing the oil, just doing whatever, basically whatever our wife tells us to do, right? And so I want you to have something that you can listen to that will edify you and help you grow as a Christian bro, again, to live, love, and lead, to honor God. This episode is part two, as I mentioned in the intro, part two of a three-part series that we're doing on the blessing of Obed-Edom. Part one was released last week, which was May, let me see, it was actually a fifth Sunday. So that was May the 30th. You can check that episode out if you haven't heard it yet, released on May the 30th. 2020, that was season three, episode number two. Now, just so you know, even though this is a three-part series on Obed-Edom, you can listen to each episode individually, meaning you don't have to listen to uh, the the episodes in sequence in order for them to make sense. You can listen to them individually, and they're still going to make sense, and they're still going to bless you. So let's jump right on in to the content, to the Bible study for this episode. Again, Obed-Edom, part two. Now, let me, again, set up some introductory information that's helpful for us to understand this story in this episode. I talked about this stuff in part one, but it's good to uh, review it so we can have some context as we're doing part two. So what we're talking about, Obed-Edom, I'll give you a little bit of a backstory. David was trying to transport the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. It had been out of Jerusalem for some time, and so David wanted to transport the Ark of the Covenant back to the city of David. On the way— a man by the name of Uzzah died because he touched the ark. I mean, he dropped dead right there on the spot. Obviously, that upset David. 
And David didn't want to continue with the journey. I don't think I would have wanted to continue with the journey either. So what does he do? Well, he leaves the Ark of the Covenant at the house of a man named Obed-Edom. We find out from 2 Samuel chapter 6 that Obed-Edom was a Gittite. That means that he was probably from the city of Gat, the Philistine city of Gat. And here's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6. What happened as a result of the Ark of the Covenant being in Obed-Edom's house? I'm reading verse 11, 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is what it says. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Verse 12. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has, now this is key, because of the Ark of God. So, very clear that the reason Obed-Edom experienced these three months of blessing was because of the Ark of God. It wasn't coincidental. It was specifically because the Ark of the Covenant was in his house that he received this blessing. Now, what I've mentioned to you before, what I mentioned in the previous episode in this series, is that we're not told exactly the manner in which Obed-Edom was blessed. We're just told that his household was blessed, but we're not told exactly the manner in which he was blessed. And so what I suggested in the first episode and what I'm reiterating here, what I'm suggesting is the following, that obviously the blessing that Obed-Edom and his family experienced was because the ark was in his house. Okay, so that being the case, because the blessing was because the ark was in the house then for me this is my this is my premise the type of blessing that obed edom experienced was related to the items that were inside the ark of the covenant okay remember that inside the ark of the covenant were three specific items the tablets of the 10 commandments aaron's rod and a jar of manna there were these three specific items Remember that the Ark of the Covenant represents God's very presence. But these three items to me, that's, I think that's, that's how the blessing manifested itself, that it was somehow related to the three items inside the Ark of the Covenant. So what I'm suggesting is that the blessing that Obed-Edom experienced related to the three items that were inside the Ark and what those three items represented for the people of God. If, if I were to put that differently, I would say that each item— in the Ark of the Covenant was meant to remind the people of God of a specific aspect of their relationship with God, and, and that's kind of what the blessing looked like in Obed-Edom's house. So in part one of this series, I talked about the blessing that the Ten Tablets of the Ten Commandments represented, which for me, they represent the blessing of right relationship or restored relationships. You have to go back and listen to that episode, Season 3, Episode 2, released on May 30th, to, for, that's where I fleshed that out. Really important. That was a long one. I don't expect this episode to be as long as that first one. But in this episode, we're going to talk about Aaron's rod, that second element. And I mean, I'm saying the second element, the second element we're going to discuss that was in the Ark of the Covenant. And, and what I think that meant for the house of Obed-Edom, the blessing that he experienced and what that means for us today. Now, I mentioned at the, in the intro that I'm going to need you to put on your big bro pants because I'm going, to, I'm going to push you a little bit. I'm going to challenge you a little bit, and we'll get to that towards the end. Before we jump into the teaching, I want to remind you that I do have some free resources available for you to help you grow in your Bible study. You can find them at thechristianbrocode.com. Now, I'm changing them up from time to time, so I can't tell you right now when you're listening exactly what that resource would be, but... There's stuff there on the on the christianbroco.com, free resources. All I need is your name and your email address, 
put some free resources into your hand that are going to help you as you grow as a disciple of Jesus, help you in your Bible study. Okay, back to the study. What we're talking about is Aaron's rod. That was one of the items that was inside the Ark of the Covenant. And so let's get a little bit of a backstory. What you're going to find with these three items that were in the Ark of the Covenant is that they all have a backstory. And the three backstories for the three elements all take place when the people of Israel were in the wilderness after their liberation from Egypt. So those three items represent a very important time in the history of Israel, and specifically their time in the wilderness. Now, we're going to have to understand something very important here with regard to Aaron's rod. And so let me set this up for you. God had consecrated Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. They were to be the priests of Israel that God had selected. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, here's what we read. This is God talking to Moses. Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. We skip all the way down to verse 43, and it says, This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants. Essentially, what God is saying is that from here till further notice, so to speak, (laughs) from here to further notice, Aaron and his descendants are the priests of Israel. And we find out in Numbers chapter 18, verse 7, this is very important. This This is nice, by the way. It's just a nice little element that God added. But still talking about Aaron and his priesthood. This is what it says. This is God talking to Aaron. But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the most holy, the holy place from the most holy place. This is what he says. I'm giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Isn't that nice? I'm giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. And anyone else who comes near the sanctuary is to be put to death, meaning anybody else who tries to perform the functions of a priest that I'm outlining for you and your descendants, they will be put to death. Aaron, you, your sons, and your descendants after you are the only ones who are to function as priests for the people of Israel. That's important, because we're going to see as this story develops how important that is. But here we discover that Aaron, his sons, and his descendants, from here till further notice— They are the priests of the people of Israel. Now, let me make a distinction here. Okay, very important to make a distinction here because we hear a lot about the priests and the Levites. Okay, let's make a quick distinction just to have a little bit of biblical background knowledge here. When we read in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, we find out all these different regulations and descriptions and definitions and explanations and guidelines that God gives Moses to give to the people of Israel. Here's what we discover. Aaron and Moses, of course, they were brothers. Aaron was from the tribe of Levi. The Levites, the, the, the people from the tribe of Levi, they were designated as the ones who were to, were to assist Aaron and his descendants as they ministered at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and eventually the temple. We find that out in Numbers chapter 4. So here's, the, here's a, an understanding that we have to have. All the priests of Israel were from the tribe of Levi. Aaron was from the tribe of Levi. That means that all the priests from Israel were from the tribe of Levi. But 
not all the Levites were priests. Only Aaron's family, his descendants, only they were priests. They were a family from within the tribe of Levi, but they were the only family from Levi that were priests. It's kind of like saying um, every triangle is a shape, but not every shape is a triangle. Every priest was from the tribe of Levi or a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. So the different clans and families within the tribe of Levi, the Levites, they were assigned the responsibility of helping, assisting the priests, Aaron and his family, in what needed to be done in taking care of uh, of the things at the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and eventually the temple. So, for example, it was the Levites who would transport the Ark of the Covenant from one place to another when the cloud would move. It was the Levites who assisted the priests, Aaron's family and his descendants, in everything that needed to take place related to ministering at the house of God. That's an important distinction that we have to make because I know we just kind of throw those terms around, priests, Levites, and okay. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Only the Levites who were from the family of Aaron and his descendants, only they were were priests. Okay, so we, we've got that established. And this is important because in Numbers 16, the people of Israel, of course, they're still in the wilderness. And what happens in Numbers 16 is, unfortunately, something that happened quite frequently in that period of time when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. What happens in Numbers 16 is that the people, or not, not everybody, I guess we can say, but there was a group of Israelites who questioned the authority of Moses and the legitimacy of Aaron's priesthood. Okay, we see this happening quite a bit during the period of the wilderness wandering where the people grumbled and murmured against Moses. Nothing new, but something very important that takes place here. So you've got these group of people, these uh, led up by three men in particular, who were grumbling and questioning the authority of Moses and the legitimacy of Aaron's priesthood. Look, number 16, verse 3. It says, they came as a group. These are these rebellious people, led by a man named Korah, who was, by the way, from the tribe of Levi. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Here's where I'm saying they were questioning Moses' authority and the legitimacy of Aaron's priesthood. When they say that the whole community is holy, what they were saying is, you guys aren't special as priests, Aaron and your descendants. We're Israel. We're all holy. We can all serve as priests. You're no more special than any one of us. I don't get why you get to be a priest and why you get to do priestly things and we don't. You're no more special. Why Why have you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? What makes you better than us? They're challenging the authority of Moses and the legitimacy of Aaron's priesthood. So what happens as a result? Well, a few things. God proved that he had chosen Moses to lead the people of Israel. Okay, look at what happens starting in verse 28, Numbers 16, starting in verse 28. Then Moses said, this is how you'll know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it wasn't my idea. Look, guys, it wasn't me. I I didn't choose myself. I didn't plan this out. It was the Lord who did all this. And so let's prove it. Okay, God is going to prove it. 
And so he's talking to the people of Israel, and he says this in verse 29 of number 16. If these men, meaning the rebels, the guys who are coming and questioning his authority, if these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then, well, the Lord hasn't sent me. Verse 30. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you'll know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. What do you think happened? Yeah. Korah and the other, the other men who were helping lead the rebellion, they, in that moment, it says that as soon, the Bible says that as soon as Moses stopped talking— <laughs> That's incredible. As soon as he stopped talking, the ground opened up and swallowed them alive. They went down into the ground alive. Them, their possessions, their families, absolutely everything, they were swallowed alive. And not only that, but then once they were swallowed alive, then the ground just closed up. Now, that was proof that God had chosen Moses to be the leader of the people of Israel. But what of Aaron? Okay, so God proved that Moses had been chosen by God to lead the people of Israel. But what about Aaron and his priesthood? What would God do to prove that he had chosen Aaron to be the priest? Well, we see that in the following verses. Because it wasn't just these three men who were leading the rebellion, uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. It wasn't just them who were leading the rebellion. There were 250 Israelite men who were with them and supporting them in this rebellion. Now, what happens here is that they, these 250 men, were performing some duties that only priests should perform. And, and Moses, you know, he set it up as a test, all right? You guys, everyone bring out the censers with, with incense and, and just go around doing what you're supposed to do with incense, and, and we're going to see what happens. Okay, we're, we're going to see what happens. So these 250 men are performing duties that only the priests, Aaron and his descendants, only they were allowed to perform. And as they're doing, these 250 men who were not priests, as they're performing priestly duties, look at what happens. Verse 35, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Now, offering the incense... That's something that only the priests were allowed to do. So these men, remember we read in a few verses earlier when Aaron and his sons were consecrated as priests, that it said if anyone else tries to come near the sanctuary, by extension, try to do priestly duties, they will be put to death. And in this case, these 250 men who are performing priestly duties or attempting to perform priestly duties by using the censers for, for incense— Fire came out from the Lord. That probably means that from the tent of meeting where Moses would meet with God, fire came out from there and it consumed them. And it says it just left them charred, left them completely charred. And with that right there, the fact that Aaron, of course, was not burned up, but these 250 men were, that was proof from God that he had chosen Aaron as the priest for the people of Israel. So notice, these men were challenging the authority of Moses and the legitimacy of Aaron as priest. God put a stop to that. The ground swallowed up those and demonstrated the legitimacy of Moses and his authority. And then fire came out of the tent of meeting and consumed those 250 men. 
and demonstrated the legitimacy of the priesthood of Aaron. Now, with those two things, you would think that that would have been enough, right? I mean, what more do you need? I mean, the ground opening up and swallowing like all these people and their possessions and their families, just swallowing them alive. That that should have been enough right there. I mean, okay, God, I get it. Sorry, my bad. Like, okay, I'm good. Like, we're good. Hey, let's just walk away slowly. No harm done. We're good. And then fire coming out of the tent of meeting or from wherever the Lord sent the fire and burning these 250 men like to 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 ashes. We, I think, I think it would have been like, okay, we're we're good, like we get it. But interestingly enough, there were still some people who doubted. I mean, they see this, and they still doubted. So we find out in Numbers chapter sixteen, verse forty-one. This is how it reads: The next day, this is the next day. I mean, <laughs> the next day. It's not even like a year later. A week later, it's the next day. I, the 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 smell of burning flesh is still in the air. Okay, I don't mean to be crass, but come on. The next day, look at what it says. The whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They still weren't convinced, and they said, you've killed the Lord's people. I mean, they were upset that God had proven that Moses and Aaron were actually the chosen ones. So what happens? Well, the Lord sent a plague that killed 14,700 people. We find that out in the book of Numbers, and Aaron has to intercede, and then the plague subsides. But still, you know, these people didn't believe. So one more evidence, one more bit of proof that God would give the people to demonstrate that Aaron indeed had been chosen as priest. Okay. For this, we go into chapter 17 of Numbers. And what we have happen here is that God tells Moses, he gives him some instructions. And so Moses gathers leaders from each of the 12 tribes. And each of these leaders from the 12 tribes is to bring his staff, okay, his staff. That staff was representative of his authority, leader of the tribe, that staff meant, you know, I, I'm the leader of this tribe. And so the the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes, they bring their staff to the tent of the meeting and they place them in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Each leader gave his, tri- his, his staff, representing his tribe, to Moses. And then Moses writes the name of each man on his staff. So uh, whatever the name of the guy from Judah, he'd write Judah, he, you know, whatever the guy from the tribe of Reuben. I don't know if he wrote the name Reuben, the name of the tribe, or the name of the man. I guess it could go either way. The point being that each tribe was represented by a staff in front of the Ark of God. And for the tribe of Levi, Moses wrote Aaron's name. Twelve staffs, twelve tribes. The tribe of Levi, that staff had the name of Aaron. And then God said that he was going to give a sign to indicate who was the man whom he had chosen to be priest. The sign was that the man's staff would sprout. Now, this in and of itself is a miraculous sign because a staff was obviously made of dead wood. You, you get a dead branch, a dead piece of wood, and you make a staff out of it. And, and you know, you have it long enough. Obviously, it's no longer alive. It's a dead piece of wood. So this is this is miraculous, right? Because God is going to make a dead piece of wood sprout. That was going to be the sign. And so whichever staff sprouted, the name 
of the man on that staff. That was the man that God had chosen. Well, guess whose who's rod sprouted? Aaron, of course. God indicated, again, miraculously that he had chosen Aaron. Numbers 16, verse 8. The next day Moses entered the tent and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the tribe of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to all the Israelites. They looked at them, and each of the leaders took his own staff. The Lord said to Moses, put back Aaron's staff in front of the Ark of the Covenant to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. So here's here's the moment when Aaron's staff makes it into you know, it's one of the items in the Ark of the Covenant. What catches my attention is where God tells Moses to put the, the Aaron's staff in front of the Ark of the Covenant of God, of God or the covenant law to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. Now, what that means is that Aaron's staff being inside the Ark of the Covenant or accompanying the Ark of the Covenant was meant to remind the people of Israel of this incident right here when there were some rebellious individuals who challenged the authority of Moses and the legitimacy of Aaron's priesthood. That was the purpose that it was there. That's what God said, to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. Obviously, it's not a sign to the rebellious that had died. Well, they had died. But anybody who from that point forward would question the authority of God's leader and God's priest, that staff was there as a sign. Remember what happened when Korah and his two companions and these 250 men, when they attempted to question and overthrow the leadership that God had selected. That was a sign to them. And I think the sign to the rebellious is, 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 it means this. You need to live under authority and leadership. And you need to live under the authority and the leadership that God has established. I think that in the house of Obed-Edom, the way that this manifested itself is that maybe there was a course correction Maybe things were getting a little bit unruly and a, and a bit wily there in Obed-Edom's home where he wasn't stepping up as a man, stepping up as a bro and exerting the leadership and the authority that God had given him. Aaron's staff represents authority and leadership and not just any authority, not just any leadership. It's the authority and the leadership that God establishes. And what we find out is that God doesn't tolerate rebellion. And we know that for a fact. God does not tolerate rebellion. And things work well when you follow God's structure. When you follow the way that God has set things up, things go well. When you don't, remember Aaron's staff and remember what happened to those men who challenged the authorities that God had put in place. Things do not go well when you don't follow the structure, the pattern, the paradigm that God has established. Now, look, I'm going to say something that in our day and age is not popular. I get it. I understand it. But I think it's biblical. It's in the Bible. But nobody likes to hear it. And it's really tough for people to say nowadays because you can be accused of all kinds of things. But let me tell you this. God established the man as the head of the home. 
I know. I know. You don't hear that a lot nowadays. You say something like that, and all of a sudden, you're labeled a misogynist. It's sexism. It's, it's wrong. You just want to keep women down. Glass ceiling. Absolutely not. That's not where I'm coming from. I know that there is sufficient biblical evidence to support the fact that we can say God established the man as the head, as the leader of the home. It's not sexist to say that. It's not misogynistic to say that. It's not an attempt to keep women down to say that. It's acknowledging God's pattern and structure for the home. And there comes a point where as bros, Christian bros, men who want to grow as disciples and live, love, and lead to honor God, we base our behaviors, our attitudes, and our actions on God's word. And God's word teaches us that the man is the head of the home. And I think this applies more than any in any other aspect. It, is, it applies to the spiritual responsibility that the man has to lead his home. That is the structure that God has established. And I, I need you to understand something. You, as the man of your home, you have been given authority in your home to lead your home. Now, we can spin this conversation off in so many different ways. This doesn't mean that every man has authority over every woman. Notice what I'm saying. God has given you authority in your home to be the leader in your home. If there are women in leadership above you, you respect that leadership. What I'm talking about is your home. God has given you spiritual leadership and authority in your home. And you need to hear this very carefully. And understand what I'm saying. Authority does not mean bullying. It's, it's a very fine line between authority, exerting your authority, and just bullying. And, and unfortunately, I think there are some men out there who think that because they've got the authority from God, they can do as they please, when they please, to whom they please, inside their home because they are the head of the home. That is not a biblical concept of the leadership and the authority God has given us in our home. Because here, hear me, this is so important, this is so crucial, that God has given you authority in your home. And listen to this, pay attention. You're supposed to use your authority in a way that benefits those you lead not for your own benefit. Let that sink in. Because unfortunately, in our world today, just generally speaking, those who are in authority, and this has been the case probably throughout all of human history, those who are in authority abuse their authority and use their authority for their own benefit instead of using their authority to benefit those that they're leading, those over whom they have authority. The biblical model that Jesus laid out for us is that if you're going to be first, you've got to be last. And, and he said himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The biblical pattern of authority is that you use your authority to benefit those 
who you are leading. It's not for your own benefit. It's not, it's not, I'm, I'm exercising my spiritual authority, so go get me what I want. Serve me. Do this for me. Rub my feet. Pick up my clothes. That's, that's not what it means. You use your authority in a way that benefits those in your home. It's not for your own benefit. That is a concept that has to get into our hearts and into our minds. It's a heart thing. Because we've, we've misunderstood and we've abused the spiritual authority, or in some cases, we've completely ignored the authority God has given us. But right in second place, after ignoring the authority God has given us, some of us have abused the authority God has given us, and we've used it only for our own benefit and not for the benefit of those we lead. And so here it is. The authority God has given you as a man in your home is not a my way or the highway type of authority. That's not what it is. It's, it's more of a, let's figure out what's best for us. The authority God has given you, it's not a, I'm always right and nobody can tell me different. That's not the type of authority. It's a type of authority that acknowledges and is able to admit when it's wrong. I mean, bro, if you've got a problem, if you struggle, if you cannot say sorry and admit when you're wrong, you're misusing your authority. You're trying to demonstrate to those who are under your authority that you're perfect, that you never do anything wrong. You've got everything. And, and just look, just ignore my mistakes because I, I didn't make a mistake. That's not the kind of authority that God would have you exercise in your home. It's an authority that's able to admit when it's wrong and to ask for forgiveness and say, you know what? I made a mistake. That means telling your wife when you've made a mistake. That means being able to apologize to your kids when you lashed out at them in anger. See, a type of authority that just looks out for himself, a guy who, a bro who exercises authority that looks out for himself, will yell at his kids, will blow up at his wife, and will never, even though you feel bad and you know you did wrong, you'll never go to them to ask for forgiveness. You'll never go to them and say sorry. But the type of authority that says, I'm here to lead my home, my wife and my children in a godly way. When you mess up, you will go with them and you will say, you know what? I'm still trying to figure this out myself. God is still working in me. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I made a mistake. That's the type of authority that God would have us exercise as Christian bros. It's the authority that God has given us. It's not about me winning it's a, I, I have to win every time, every argument, every decision. I have to. No, that's not the point of the authority that God has given you. Remember, it's about exercising the authority that's best for those you are leading. It's not about me winning. It's about the team winning. It's about the family winning. And, and when you, you understand this concept and you understand that you've been, you've been chosen by God to have the authority in your home, then you're looking out for the family. You're looking out for the team. You want the team to win. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous sometimes when you see athletes who aren't team players and they're just looking out for their own stats, right? I just, I just want to pad my stats. I don't care if we win or lose. I just want to pad my stats. And, and maybe individually they end up winning an award or two, but the team loses. And there, there are Christian bros who in their home They're concerned with winning. I'm going to win the argument, the decision. I'm going to win, not realizing that the team is losing, that the family is losing, that the marriage is losing. Look, if you have to win, that means that somebody has to lose. 
And if you win, let's just say an argument with your wife or a disagreement with your wife, if you have to win, that means that she loses. And if she loses, you both lose. The family lost. The marriage lost. All you did was damage yourself. All you did was damage your marriage because you wanted this little victory because you're the man and I need to show my authority. Well, guess what? It's a team. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and his father and join with his wife and the both will become one flesh. You're now one flesh. You're one team. And if she loses, guess what? You just lost also. You self-sabotaged. It's it's now both of you. It's not about me winning. It's about how do we win together? Yes, we have a disagreement, but look, we, we can work this out. We can ask the Lord for, for wisdom and for guidance. We're, we're two smart individuals. We can figure this out so that the family wins, so that the marriage wins. It's not about me winning and you losing. It's about us growing together as a family, as a marriage, so we can both win. But that has to be led by you as the Christian bro. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, and you know this is true, that the atmosphere in your home is set by you. You, you know that's true. Man, it was true in my case when I was growing up with my dad. My dad was a rough guy, really. And if if he was if he was upset, like I, I mean, you you just better be really careful. You're walking around on eggshells. It's pins and needles. If he was happy, ooh, man, the house just felt so much lighter. And I noticed that when I got married, I kind of carried that into my family life. That my attitude it set the atmosphere in the home. And you know that that's true in your case as well. That's the authority that you have. That's the influence that you have in your home. And as a Christian bro, here's what we're looking to do. We want to exercise our authority in such a way that it benefits those whom we are leading, not to benefit us. And when you, you dive into leadership studies and books on leadership, they'll tell you that the biggest success of a leader is not his individual accomplishments. It's the team accomplishments, and if he's been able to pour out of himself into others so that they succeed, that's the biggest success of a leader. And I would say that in, in a home environment, in a, in a marriage, in a fatherhood, your biggest success is not your individual wins. It's when your wife and your kids succeed because of you. And that happens when you understand how to exercise the spiritual authority that God has given you. You know what? You tell your kids to go to church. Why? Because that benefits them. And you exercise your authority in that right way. You sometimes have to punish your kids. There are consequences to their actions, but you do it in such a way that you're exercising that spiritual authority so that it benefits them, not just it makes you feel good and you show them, look, I can do whatever I want because I'm the dad around here and you're going to live under my rules. and my. It's not about that. It's about exercising your authority so that they benefit from your authority. I think that's what... The rod of Aaron was there to remind Obed-Edom of what he needed to do. I, I don't, there's no way I know what was going on in the house of Obed-Edom before the Ark of the Covenant arrived. But once the Ark of the Covenant arrived and he knew that the, the rod of Aaron was in there, it was a sign to the rebellious and it may have been a call to Obed-Edom, get your house in order. Hey, things are not the way they're supposed to be. You're not exercising the authority that God has given you. Get things in order. 
And it needs to be you, Obed-Edom, because you are the spiritual authority. God has given you the spiritual authority. Get things in order. And I would say that God would have that same message for us today. Take stock. Take inventory. How are things in your home? And if you're not, number one, exercising that spiritual authority, then you better do something. And if you've been exercising it, but in a way that only benefits you and not those whom you are leading, you need to change course. And, and get into God's Word, get into a men's group, listen to more podcasts, do what you got to do so that you can learn how to exercise your spiritual authority in a way that benefits those God has placed under your leadership, those who are under your very own roof. You know, a few months ago, my uh, pastoral team and I, we went to a, a church conference. It was a conference on discipleship. At our church, we're, we're, man, we're just really digging into discipleship. We just feel that that's, that's what we need to be doing. So we went to this conference in Atlanta, and uh, several different presenters, several different speakers went up to teach us different principles of, of discipleship. And every single time they went up there, they all started, every, not a single exception, every single one of them started their, their portion of the presentation this way. They showed us a picture. And they showed us a picture of their family and just very, you could tell it wasn't rehearsed. You could tell it was just natural. They would say, these are my primary disciples. This is my first discipleship group. And it was always a picture of their family. And then they would say, and here's a picture of some of the men that I'm discipling. Or if it was a lady, here's a picture of the women I'm discipling. But they would always start with a family picture and say, this is my first discipleship group. And I loved that concept, that idea that as a Christian bro, yeah, I know you want to have impact and influence at work, at church, in your neighborhood. I know. And that's, that's noble. That, that's good. Go after that. Go after it hard. But your first spiritual responsibility is at home. And I'll tell you, you've probably heard this before, with kids the days are long, but the years go by fast. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dad of two teenagers, one who is about to be 19, the other who is about to be 16. And they're, you know, they're starting to just kind of go off on their own. And it's at about this point that you start taking inventory. Did I do enough? Was I there enough? Did I disciple them enough? Did I teach them enough? Did I coach them along enough? And sometimes... Unfortunately, I look at certain aspects of how I did things and I say, no, I didn't do it right. No, I didn't invest time. No, I gave more attention to other things than to discipling my own daughters at times. And then there are those other times where you say, man, yes, thank you. By the grace of God, yeah, I was able to do it. And I'm, I want to let you know. I want to let you know it's not too late. It's not, you can still have that spiritual influence in the lives of your kids, definitely in the life of your wife exercise that spiritual authority in such a way that it benefits them. Get out of the way. Get, get, get your own needs, your own interests. Put them to a side. Put them to the side and just focus on them and what they need. Exercise that spiritual authority that God has given you so that they benefit, not for your own benefit, but for theirs. All right, bro. I want you to meditate on that. I want you to think on that. My prayer is going to be, look, this morning I was praying and thinking about this, this episode that I'd be recording, and I, uh, 
Of course, I don't know you by name or exactly who you are, but I did pray for you this morning. I prayed for you, and I said, Lord, whoever listens to this episode, just give them receptive ears, a receptive mind, and a receptive heart. Let them know that your grace covers them, that if if they feel that they have failed and they've committed mistakes, let them know that they serve a God of grace and help them, help them to take these principles from your word that are true, that they're reliable, that they're trustworthy, and that they would have the courage to put them into place so they can live, love, and lead to honor God. That's what I've got for you, bro, and I. I pray that this has been helpful for you. Go back and read Numbers 16, 17. Read about the priests. Read about all this stuff that happened with Aaron and with Moses. Some stuff in there is going to blow you away. It's got some very interesting details in there that we didn't cover in this episode, but they're in there. Good stuff. Good stuff. Learn as much as you can. Dig into the Bible. Do some Bible study. I think the best way, the absolute best way, To grow as a disciple who lives, loves, and leads to honor God is just dig into the Bible. Bible study. It's where it's at. That's where it is. All right, bro. Hey, we've got one more episode in this series of Obed-Edom. We'll be talking about that third item that was in the Ark of the Covenant, a jar of manna, and what that means for us today. It's going to be another good one. Make sure you subscribe. Be on the lookout for that final episode in this series. All right, bro, that's it for now. Until next time, God bless, bro.